You are now listening to the July 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the seven signs, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with the seven signs. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Signs of Jesus. For the last few weeks, we considered Jesus' first sign that turned water into wine. It happened at a wedding in Cana. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he provided the choice wine to the guests and in abundance. Thereby, he demonstrated that he was the promised Messiah. Today, we'll proceed to Jesus' second sign. It comes from John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Let's read John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54 together before we start. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official, whose son was sick, at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and he was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The second sign involves Jesus healing a sick son of a royal official in Capernaum. He performed the sign remotely from Galilee without actually going into Capernaum. He did that just by saying it would be so. It is interesting to consider the second sign in comparison to the first. The first sign of turning water into wine is a sign that shows us how Jesus transcends the natural or physical laws. Clearly, water and wine would have an entirely different molecular composition, and Jesus overcame their differences. Today's sign of healing remotely a sick son of the royal official shows us how Jesus also transcends the physical distance and the time it would take to travel that distance. This sign, in fact, was the proof of that. In summary, Jesus transcends the natural laws, physical distance, and even time. Because God is the Creator, He transcends all created things. Just as we came to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah by witnessing how He enhanced the feast with a choice wine at the wedding in Cana as the first sign in fulfillment of the promise in the Old Testament. We could yet again witness that Jesus is the Messiah through this second sign. Capernaum is a town located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. In Cana, where Jesus showed his first sign, is located in the west side of the Sea of Galilee. They are about 20 miles apart from each other. In the verses we read today, it says Jesus came to Cana again. 
Then a royal official came to see Jesus and begged Jesus to come with him to Capernaum and heal his son. At his request, Jesus healed the royal official's son, and he did so without actually going into Capernaum. He healed the boy simply by uttering the words that the son would be healed. His might worked, transcending the physical distance between the two cities. Apostle John said that this was Jesus' second sign since Jesus came to Galilee. In fact, the Bible repeatedly tells us these signs were happening in Galilee. Since the Bible seems to emphasize these signs were happening in Galilee, we could perhaps deduce that there could be some connection between these signs and Galilee as a geographical region. So what kind of place was Galilee? Today, we associate Galilee with Jesus' hometown, so it projects a positive image to us. However, that was not the case during the time of Jesus. This region was not favored by other Jewish people. Historically, the region around Galilee was the land portion to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, among the twelve tribes by Joshua. In a sense, you might say they were on the outskirts of the country. The central city of Judah was Jerusalem, where the house of God was. Galilee is located north of Jerusalem, and between them is the town of Samaria. As we know well, Samaria was the land where mixed people lived. These were the descendants of Jacob from the northern kingdom of Israel, when they intermarried with foreigners and failed to keep the Jewish blood lineage. Consequently, they were despised by other Jewish people. And Jesus' hometown, Galilee, is located in the north of that Samaria. As we understand, Jewish people did not go across Samaria, but went around the long way by the east of Jordan River when they traveled to Galilee. It's because they hated the Sumerians so much, they even refused to set foot on their soil. Because of this reason, Jewish people who lived in the Jerusalem area also looked down on Galilee as well. Jewish people at the time often said, what good will come out of Galilee? And it reflects their negative sentiment about Galilee. As such, Galilee was geographically and politically isolated from the mainstream Jewish culture, and the people of Galilee were treated as ignorant and ungodly people. There is a prophecy regarding this very aspect of Galilee in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 says the following, But there will be no more gloom for who who was in anguish in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali was despised, the land around the Sea of Galilee, which had been in long darkness and under the shadow of death, would one day see the great big light. That was the day of the coming of the promised Messiah. On that day, the light would emanate from the region of Galilee. The latter part of Isaiah chapter 9 records about a child being born to us, the government resting on his shoulder and his name being called Wonderful Counselor, describing the Messiah. Then, what do you think is the meaning of this sign? Jesus healing the son of a royal official in John chapter 4. If the first sign of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana was to demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah, the second sign at the Galilee was to signify the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of the Messiah shining the light from Galilee. This sign was a sign of assurance that Jesus 
was that Messiah. The royal official pleaded with Jesus to heal his son. In response, Jesus told him in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official believed Jesus could heal his son. But what prompted this reply by Jesus? What was it that the royal official did not believe? For Jesus to say that he would not believe without seeing signs and wonders. Yes, the royal official believed that Jesus could heal his son, but he did not have the faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Son of God. So Jesus was urging this official to see him for more than a healer of the sick, to see him for who he really is, the one who would save the world. In summary, it is not enough to believe in Jesus as someone that can perform miracles. What we must focus on is not the miracles themselves, but Jesus himself who performs those miracles. We should review what Apostle John said in John chapter 20, verse 31, in regards to why he recorded these signs. John said that the reason he wrote about these signs was so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and the Messiah. By believing that, we may have life in his name. Whoever reads the Old Testament and believes in the promise of God will also believe inevitably that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. This concludes today's episode of The Signs of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
face how sweet the sound It covers every part of me My soul is silent Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is God Alone Draws the Lines. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. I know that I find myself asking this question on a regular basis. Where do I draw the line? And I know if I'm asking it, you're asking it. As a matter of fact, people come to me as a pastor all the time and they're going, Pastor Bill, help me figure out where to draw the line on this issue or that issue. So we're all dealing with this. Now, sometimes answering this question is nice and easy. It's nice and clean. And it's great when it is, isn't it? It's like crystal clear. I know where to draw the line here. But then other times it's not so easy. It's just like, oh my gosh, what do I do in this particular situation? Now here's the deal. The question of where to draw the line is even further complicated if you call yourself a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, then you and I operate from a different set of standards than the world. Do we not? Of course we do. That only adds to sometimes the difficulty of where to draw the line. We are making eternal decisions. We are trying to make decisions that honor God. So it's not like people in the world who are like, well, whatever, no big deal, what, no harm, no foul. We are trying to make decisions that honor God. We're trying to make eternal decisions. We're trying to draw lines that have eternal consequences. And that is a big, big deal. Thus, we are forced to factor in things that the non-believer doesn't have to. Now, the question of where to draw the line has application in practically every area of our lives. Everything from our relationships to religion to ethics to politics is on the table when we ask this question. So this morning, we're kicking off this series by addressing the issue of where to draw the line in the most important of all areas, and that is our relationship with the Lord. Now, let's address something up front and straight away. This is what needs to be said. And what needs to be said is going to be hard for a lot of us to hear. So brace yourselves. When it comes to our relationship with God, we don't draw the lines. He does. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. God draws the lines. God draws the lines. As a matter of fact, he draws the lines, period, end of sentence. He does. Remember when you had children or grandchildren, if you've been around kids, you see the kindergartner who brings home their work. And there's lines all over. There's no lines. They're not in the lines. They're not drawing in the lines. But you look at it and you go, this is beautiful, right? Here's the point. Compared to God, we are but kindergartners with crayons trying to draw lines that he alone should draw. We are but kids, kindergartners with crayons compared to God. Now, almost everyone listening to me right now agrees with this. God draws the lines. We all agree with it. In principle, we all agree that God is God, so of course he's the one that gets to draw the lines. But while we might agree with this in principle, we struggle with it in reality. I know that I do. (laughs) I know that I do, and if I do, I know you do. And one of the big reasons I think we struggle with this is because we as human beings have a really bad tendency. You want to know what that tendency is? That tendency is to assume that our relationship with God is more or less like our relationship's with everyone else in our lives. We go, yeah, here are my friends and here are my family. And, you know, of course, God's above them. You know, so, but if I were to put it in order, God's at the top, of course, but then right below him and right below them and right below them. Here's the problem with that. God's not just right above us, right above our other relationships. He's exceedingly far above all of our relationships, right? The tendency as humans is to say, well, God's kind of good and I'm not so bad. I say this all the time. That is our tendency to say God's kind of good and I'm not so bad when in fact God is exceedingly holy and other than we are and we are exceedingly sinful. We are exceedingly different from God in every way imaginable. God is God 
And that means he's in a category all by himself. Listen to what Isaiah says. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? What's the answer? Nothing. The answer, of course, is nothing. There is nothing to which you and I can compare God in heaven above or on earth below as God. That means he holds all the cards. He draws all the lines. And here's the key. If you're willing to embrace this truth, it can and will change your life in ways that you couldn't possibly dare dream about. It will change your life. Now, let's have a moment of honesty. Letting someone else draw the lines is scary. Even when that person is God himself, right? As a matter of fact, we might say letting someone else draw the lines is scary, especially when that person is God. I mean, if God is the one drawing the lines, who knows what my life will be like or where I will end up. I'll probably end up in some third world country for heaven's sakes. God's the one drawing the lines. If God's drawing the lines, I won't be happy in life. I'll probably be miserable. And if God's the one drawing the lines, that means I got to make some tough decisions regarding those lines. These are the questions that scare us when someone else is drawing the line, especially God. Listen, everyone likes to think they trust God. The question is, to what extent do you and I trust God? Everyone is comfortable trusting God to draw some of the lines. Who isn't? Everyone's comfortable with God drawing some of the lines. The question is, will we go all in when it comes to God drawing all the lines? All of them. All of the lines. All of the moral lines. All of the ethical lines. All of the lines regarding the relationships we're in. All of the financial lines. All of the lines regarding our priorities and how we govern our life. Are we all in on that proposition? But again, here's the good news. Once a person goes all in, when it comes to trusting the lines that God draws, that person's life with God will never be the same. Your life will never be the same. Everything you know will change, and it will change in a way that you couldn't possibly even imagine. You will never regret when you go all in with the Lord. Do you want to know one of the first things, by the way, that you realize upon accepting that God alone gets to draw the lines? You realize this. There's no one better at drawing lines than God. Again, compared to God, we are kindergartners with crayons. He's the expert. He's the one that created the universe. He laid out the heavens and set boundaries. He knows how to draw lines, good, good lines. You quickly realize God knows what he's doing, and he's really good at what he does. Listen, if God is perfect and the lines he draws are perfect, then the most perfect decision you or I could ever make is falling in love with the lines that God draws. You see, there's great benefits that come to the person who trusts in the lines that God draws. Do you understand this? There's great benefits. And here's just a couple, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Let me take you to another verse that you're all familiar with in Proverbs. Listen to the benefits that come to the person who trusts the lines that God draws. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, stop trying to draw the lines that God alone should be drawing. Don't trust yourself to draw the lines. You're but a kindergartner with crayons compared to God. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I love this. And he will make straight your path. Who doesn't want a straight and sturdy path where every footstep you take is sure and steady? Does that sound like a good benefit? That comes to the person and to the person who alone trusts the lines that God draws. It is the person who says, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm not going to be the one trying to draw the lines that God alone should be drawing. I'm going to trust him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he will make every step I take sure and steady. And love what it says. It's just like the last verse. It's like nourishment, refreshment to you. When you obey God, it is so good. I spent the first 17 years of my life eating junk food. Not literal junk food. I mean, living in sin, living for myself. And I was worn down and worn out. But when I got saved and I began to feast on the things of the Lord and I began to trust the lines that he was drawing, it was like nourishment to my bones. It was like I was becoming a new creation, a new person that God was forming. 
in and through me. You know, I meet so many people who are miserable simply because they won't submit to the lines that God draws. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The most miserable people in all the world are Christians who try to keep one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And you know how I know that? I've been there. There have been plenty of times, I've been a Christian 35 years, there's been plenty of times where I'm like, all right, I'm going to be the one Christian that does this well. I'm going to put one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, and I'm going to do it better than anybody else. And guess what? It just results in misery. Do you want to know what should scare you, by the way? As Americans, we're scared about a lot of things. We're scared about our economy. We're scared about foreign entities, um, everything. We're scared about our future, our kids, you name it, the coronavirus, so on and so forth. Do you know what should really scare you? The thought that somehow you and I know better than God and that we can actually draw better lines than him. That's what should terrify you. I often say this. I often worry about all the wrong things. I will spend my life worrying. And then when I look back on that season of life, it's funny. I go, I was worried about all the wrong things. It's just the nature of, I guess, who I am. I don't know if you do it too, but let me give you a good example. What should scare you is not the economy or what's happening in China or Russia or any other foreign country. What should scare you is that you and I somewhere deep down think that we can draw better lines than God. Folks, we are but kindergartners with crayons in the presence of of a God whose law is perfect and whose testimony is sure, who's never drawn a bad line in his life. This is who we are. That is the thought that should keep you awake at night. So here's the deal. Let's get practical. Let's get practical. Where are some of the places we see God drawing very clear lines that people have a hard time accepting? Now, this is the whole sermon series, by the way. The reason I start with this message is because all the subsequent messages are going to be based on this one principle. God gets to Say it with me. Draw the lines. you got to be firm on this foundation because we're going to build on it in the weeks to come. But let's get practical. Where are some areas where we see this? Let me give you some of the big ones. Let me give you some of the big ones. Ironically, one of the key areas we see people struggling with the lines that God has clearly drawn is when it comes to the issue of God himself. God alone gets to draw the lines defining who he is. Listen, ask the average person in America to define who God is. What will they say? What will they say? They will describe for you a God that they have made up in their own minds and according to their own imagination. In many cases, this will be the case. What might even be more tragic is I've been in many conversations with people where I have talked to them describing the God of the Bible, and upon hearing about that God, their response is, if that is the God of the Bible, I want nothing to do with him. Perhaps you've been in such conversations as well. Sadly, such people really only want to follow a God whom they get to define by the lines they personally get to draw. You want to know what the problem with that is? The problem is you end up with a God who doesn't exist. When you draw the lines defining who God is, you have just created a God that doesn't exist. Well done. (laughs) A God who doesn't exist is a God who doesn't save. Not only do you end up with a God who doesn't exist, you have now crossed a line that God has clearly drawn, and the line you have crossed is that of idolatry. Here's a great example of a line that God has clearly drawn. Church, hear the word of God. Exodus chapter 20. By the way, where are the two places where the Ten Commandments are found? Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Listen, could it be any more clear than this? God's saying, stop, don't even try to draw lines. Don't even start. When it comes to me, I define who I am. Don't build anything, make anything, draw anything at all. Anywhere. And it's like in heaven above, even under the ocean, no matter where you could go, don't draw whatever you see and say it's me because it's not. Think about the tragedy, folks, of spending your entire life believing in a God that doesn't exist. Yet this is exactly, this is exactly what we see happening here in America, and really just across this planet of ours. This is what happens when people assume they are the ones who get to draw the lines defining who God is and who he isn't. John 4.24, you know it well. God is spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In truth. And here's the key, guys. If you are not worshiping God in truth, you are not worshiping God at all. When it comes to our relationship with God, the only one who is truly empowered is God. That's it. You may have been empowered by this country and the freedoms that you have, but when you walk into the throne room of God, set that aside and remember who you are approaching. You are approaching the one true God that exists in unapproachable light, who is holy beyond your wildest imagination. And anyone, by the way, in the scripture, whoever saw God, what? Fell down as though dead. Remember who you are walking into the presence of him. Fear him. He is holy. So holy that in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Remember Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim are flying before the Lord. And it says the seraphim had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their bodies. And with two, they flew. And they cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why is this description in the Bible? Again, I've said it before. It is as if the very angels that were created to fly in the presence of God can barely stand to be there because he's so majestic and so holy that they must cover themselves. God's got all the power. He has all the say. He has all the rights. He gets to draw all the lines. That is the God of the Bible. Amen? That's the God you want to follow. You don't want to follow a weak, passive God who doesn't know where to draw the lines and leaves it up to you. No, that's not a God you want to follow, and that is certainly not the God of the Bible. You either come to him according to the lines he has drawn, or you do not come at all. If you are not worshiping God in truth, you are not worshiping him at all. Whatever you do, do not spend your life believing in a God who doesn't exist. I don't know, with this many people in this, in this room right now and those watching online, I don't know where you all are in your walk with God, but if you have been one, the one drawing the lines, defining who God is, I tell you today, stop drawing and come to the God of the Bible. Come to him as he has drawn the lines on his terms. Let me give you another practical example of a place where we see God drawing very clear lines that people often have a hard time accepting. Not only does God get to draw the lines about who he is, he also gets to draw the lines regarding who we are. Now, there is a very dangerous view circulating around that as human beings, we are all children of God. As a matter of fact, in this culture, to say otherwise, you'll be canceled. You will. I'll probably be canceled for this in some way, some small way, whoever, somebody will see this and will be offended at the fact that, no, we're all children of God. Now, I think that part of this comes from the fact that the Bible makes it very clear That as human beings, we were all created in the image of God, right? But what people fail to realize is that being created in the image of God does not automatically make you a child of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes out of its way to make crystal clear that there's no one righteous. No, not one. One of my favorite, I'm always quoting Romans 3. If you want to know kind of my heart, just go to Romans 3. This This will be a good start of where my heart is. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. As the famous theologian said, the only thing that you bring to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That is all you have to offer God. You have no righteousness apart from Christ at all. Do you realize that? And that's why I say when we think that, well, God's kind of good and I'm not so bad. No, 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 no. God is exceedingly holy. He exists in unapproachable light and you have nothing. You bring nothing to the table except the sin that made it necessary. You have no righteousness at all, right? All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. This is, again, in your thinking and with your families. By the way, you can never make this gap wide enough. At your very best, always never let your family lower God even in the slightest. And whatever you do, don't let them raise themselves in the slightest. You keep that there for your family and for your friends. No matter who you are, you keep that distance where it should be. God infinitely holy, we not so much. Now, most people are going to immediately recoil at this verse, and they're going to say, of course, come on, I'm not that bad of a person. They're going to go, I'm, I may not be great, but I'm, I'm certainly not down here. I'm up here a little bit. The problem is, you and I don't get to draw the lines when it comes to this issue. God does. So we're living in fascinating times. You want to know why it's fascinating? Because we're living in a culture where now people can identify themselves as whatever they want. Incredible. It's incredible that we are here. If someone identifies themselves in a particular way, we are being told to accept it without question because if you don't accept it without question, you're an oppressor, you're a bigot, you're going to be canceled. Accept it. 
Why is this important? Here's why. You might like to identify yourselves as a good person, but you're not. (laughs) Nor am I, apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we can say, well, I'm not a bad person. Says who? You? When did you get to draw the lines with regard to this issue? I think I recall the Bible having to say a thing or two about who God is and who we are. And when it comes to those two issues, guess who gets to draw the lines? God does. God gets to draw the lines. Listen, whatever you do, everyone in here, I'm going to shake some people. Whatever you do, never lose sight of the fact that even though the U.S. government might give you the right to identify yourselves as whatever you want, God does not. We do not take our cues from the U.S. government. We take our cues from the scriptures where God has spoken clearly. And what God says we are, who we are, and what we are, that's what we are. Period. End of sentence. Just as God gets to draw the lines as to who he is, he gets to draw the lines when it comes to who we are. And according to God's word, who we are isn't all that good. It isn't good at all. You want to know how bad it is? This is how bad it is. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me ask you a question. Before you became a Christian, did you ever think of yourselves as following demonic spirits? But you did. According to this, you did. So did I. Among whom we all once lived. That means you and me. (laughs) That means you and me. In the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of God. Is that what it says? Children of wrath. We were children of wrath. Yes, we are created in the image of God. Yes, we are image bearers, but that does not automatically make you a child of God. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Folks, the lines laid down in this passage alone sting. They sting because they take a shot at the very thing that we're good at, and that is being prideful. Lifting ourselves up as having something to bring to the table with our relationship with God when we bring nothing at all. Nothing at all. But I want you to notice that Paul is talking in the past tense in this passage, is he not? And that is because the lines that once defined the Christians in Ephesus no longer exist. And that is because God in his mercy sent his one and only son into the world to erase the old lines and create new ones. That's the great thing about our God. If he decides, hey, we're going to fix this line and put a new line over here, guess who has the prerogative to do that? He is the God in heaven that can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And that leads to our final point this morning, and it is simply this. God draws the lines about how people are saved. God draws the lines about who he is, who we are, and how people are saved. Now, just as there is a mistaken idea that we are all children of God, there is also a mistaken idea out there. And listen, I know you all know this because I'm going to test you right now. Ready? All roads lead to heaven or lead to God, right? All roads. You know it. You know it so well that I just have to prompt you and you can finish it. Once again, this is a classic example of mankind trying to draw lines that we have no authority to draw whatsoever. God gets to define who he is, who we are, and how people are saved. And according to God, there is only one way to be saved, one way and one way only. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself stressed this truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know every one of you in here that is a believer today, you have encountered people who have told you, certainly other people, other ways, there's a lot of ways to God. Who gets to define that? Who gets to draw that line? Them? Me? You? No, God gets to draw that line. And he has drawn that line to one single person in history, his son, Jesus Christ. And immediately people are going to recoil and go, well, that's offensive. How dare you say that there is only one way to heaven? I say this all the time. If you're new with us or if you're watching online, I say this all the time. What should shock you isn't that there's only one way to heaven. What should shock you is that there's a way at all. God owes us nothing. See, that's a fundamental problem we have. The minute you think God owes you something, anything, you're off on the wrong foot. He gets to draw all the lines about what is right and wrong. Do you trust him enough to draw all the lines? I'm going to say something, and I don't know why I was burdened to say this. I said it last night at our Saturday night service, but I want to speak to the men in here right now. 
Men, do you want to know what courage is? If you're looking to the world to know what courage is, you're looking in the wrong place. Courage is the man that goes all in and trusts God to draw the lines. And it's the same for women, but I want to speak to the men. What is courageous is a man who leads his family, who leads his friends, who leads with the courage of conviction to say that God draws the lines and no matter what, no matter the cost to me, I'm going to follow. And I'm going to live by those lines and live in those lines. Why? Because it's nourishment to my soul. No one draws better lines than God. If you want to be a man of courage in this generation, go all in. If there is an area of your life, men, where you are holding out, where God doesn't have authority, where he has drawn lines, but you are crossing that line, today submit and give him that area or those areas. And it goes for the women in here as well. The most beautiful woman, according to Proverbs 31, is what? The woman of God. The woman who's all in, who trusts God. She's good. She's good for her husband, right? A godly wife who can find. She's worth more than all the riches in the world. Men, if you want to be courageous, go all in. Women, if you want to be beautiful, go all in. God is large and in charge. He's drawn all the lines. The question for you and I is, will we trust and obey? This is what it comes down to. Will we trust and obey? God knows what he's doing. Trust him. So if I may be so bold to finish with a question, here it is. Is there an area of your life where you need to start trusting God and the lines that he has clearly drawn? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. And Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God that speaks. You speak with conviction. And God, you are a God that has not left your creation without wisdom or knowledge. God, you have drawn clear lines. And we look to your word and we know and we learn there that your law is perfect. God, forgive us of the times in which we have drawn our own lines. Perhaps we're in a place in our life right now where we're doing just that. God, forgive us and help us, God, to trust you to draw all the lines. Help us to submit even when it's hard, even when we don't know what the full ramifications are going to be for us. God, may we trust and obey no matter the cost to us. In the quietness of your heart, and if you're watching online, just a moment of private prayer. Come to the Lord and ask him to search your heart and ask him to help you to go all in. Father, we thank you and we love you. And I pray for these students, these Valley students over here, God, this next generation that you are raising up, God, that you would raise them up to be more courageous, more bold, more on fire than this generation could ever dare dream about. God, that they would do more for you than even us. God, bless them and go before them and give them the courage to follow you with all of their hearts. So Father, we love you. We thank you and we pray these things in your son's name. And everybody said with me, amen. Hey, one more round of applause for Valley Christian, please. Only a man.
You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, this is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we learned how God fulfilled the promises He made to Abraham. He vowed to make Abraham a great nation through his descendants, to make his name great, and through Abraham all nations on earth will be blessed. We also saw how faithful God is. We also examined how Abraham entered into the land of Canaan. We then considered how upon Abraham's arrival in Canaan, at the Oak of Moreh, where Canaanites worshipped their gods, that God appeared to him and told him that he will give the land to him. Today, we are going to look at how Abraham made mistakes because of his insecure faith, even though he left Haran and entered Canaan with faith at first. Genesis chapter 12 verse 10 tells us that there was a famine in the land. Why did God, who controls everything, send a famine even though Abraham obeyed God's command and came to Canaan? What do you think God's reason was? Let's take a look at how God spreads his hand over Abraham. First, why don't we look at the status of Abraham's faith? Abraham left Haran and entered Canaan. It is a desirable example of obeying God. He built an altar for God under the oak of Moray. It is another desirable example of obeying God. These are very similar to how we respond and come to God when God called us to be His children. We leave the land because we acknowledge God's calling, 
get to know Jesus and accept Him. And we are baptized in the midst of the world and confess that our God is the only God. That is how our life of faith starts. But even though we start our life of faith in such a way, that does not change the way we live our lives or our beliefs overnight. Of course, there are some elements of our lives that might change immediately, but for most of us, the process of being free from sin takes a long time. The changes occur over time as we experience the living God who works daily in our very lives. That is what Abraham was facing. When Abraham faced the famine, those of us who have strong faith may think, oh no, he should have prayed to God. We feel he should have prayed, God, you sent me all the way here. I came this far because you commanded me. But there is a famine here. What should I do? But we feel saddened for him for not being able to give such a prayer. However, Abraham is still a young child spiritually. He was just born in the Lord. In other words, he came this far by obeying God's word, but he did a very normal thing that people would do normally when a famine came. What did he do? He went down to Egypt and stayed there a while. Canaan is the land that depended on rain for farming. So when there is no rain, there is famine. But Egypt farmed with the water from the Nile River. So food was always plentiful and a large market was formed. They were able to sell and buy all the necessities. And Egypt was one of the strongest countries in the world during that time. So it was very natural for Canaanites to go to Egypt when there was a famine since they were able to buy food there. But Abraham acted the same as Canaanites despite God's leading and having faith in God. Now that is also the reflection of us as well. Though he left Haran by obeying God's word and built an altar and called upon God's name, he tried to solve the problem on his own, thinking and acting like a worldly person when he was faced with the immediate problem with sustenance. He tried to take care of things on his own without consulting God. It is because he did not know God that well. And the same thing happens to a lot of us Christians as well, very naturally. I am not saying that it is wrong. Rather, I am saying that it is a very natural thing to happen. Let's see how God uses such a natural situation to change and teach us. God did not stop Abraham or punish him from going down to Egypt. He just stayed patiently and walked with him. Then Abraham had a worry when he almost reached Egypt. What was the worry? Let's read Genesis chapter 12 verses 11 through 13. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai his wife, See, now I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. We see Abraham telling his wife to lie for his own safety first. This shows also how we are as well. Humans will do any despicable thing to protect our lives, and that is human nature. Abraham left Haran when he heard God's voice. He built an altar for God and called upon his name. But he had not experienced how God was protecting him. Therefore, he did not clearly understand in his heart what God's promise meant. The only thing he could think of to keep his life safe was to convince his wife to tell the Egyptians that he was his sister. He was worried about them killing him and taking her away. But doesn't telling Egyptians that she was his sister mean that she was not married? That meant the same as Abraham saying that losing Sarah was not as important. If he was worried about them killing him and taking Sarah away because she was beautiful just as he said, he should have thought about how more easily they could have taken her away if he said she did not have a husband. This shows us the limit of human thinking. What is more important is that Abraham did not remember God's promise whatsoever. He should have protected his wife at all costs since God promised him that he will make a great nation through him. But he believed his safety was the most important. Just as Abraham feared, when Pharaoh heard of Sarah's beauty, he took her. Verse 16 tells us that Pharaoh treated Abraham well for her sake, giving him sheep, 
oxen, donkeys, male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. Pharaoh paid Abraham the dowry. Some people say that God blessed Abraham for gaining such riches, but isn't that a not-so-correct interpretation? How can gaining riches by having his wife taken away by a lie be God's blessing? This incorrect interpretation comes from such people who merely interpret gaining riches as God's blessing. Let's continue to read verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. What were the plagues? The Bible does not specifically tell what they were, so we would not know. However, from the plagues, Pharaoh found out that Sarah was Abraham's wife and not his sister. Pharaoh chastised Abraham as to why he deceived him by telling him that his wife was his sister in the next verse. Pharaoh became angry with Abraham and said that he made Abraham's wife his wife because of Abraham's lie. Pharaoh must have felt that it was very unfair for him from his point of view. He did not take Sarah knowingly. Anyhow, Pharaoh was very furious. When we expressed this verse in its original language, there were only three words, hear, your wife, and go. It feels as if he did not even want to speak to Abraham and just wanted to get rid of him. Verse 20 tells us that Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they escorted him, his wife, and all his belongings away. Let's give some thought regarding this event. The Bible recorded this event in one short verse. They escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. When we read the verse as is, we can just let go as is. But if we think about it a bit deeper, what happened to Abraham was a miracle. The person who Abraham crossed was not a mere man next door. He was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation at that time. It is not known exactly when Abraham lived, but according to most scholars, and they agree that he must have lived about 2000 BC. That is the time when the pyramids were already built. Historians say pyramids were already being built since 2800 BC. That means Abraham made Pharaoh, who was considered as a god in Egypt, the strongest nation among the countries in the eastern region that had the power to build pyramids furious. In reality, no one could say anything if someone was killed for lying to a king. We see here in verse 19 and 20 how Abraham did not get harmed even though he deceived the king of Egypt. Furthermore, Pharaoh did not take back the things he gave to Abraham. He did not say to return all the things he gave to Abraham in return of his wife. Rather, he sent them away as well as Abraham. We do not know what kind of plagues Pharaoh experienced. But the plagues made Pharaoh realize that there was someone protecting Abraham. He realized that there was a being who he, the strongest king in the world, could not dare to touch. So he could not harm Abraham or take back what he had given to him. Just as we saw earlier, though Pharaoh was so angry that he only could murmur three words, Now your wife, go. He could not touch Abraham. What do you think Abraham must have thought after such an ordeal? He could have thought, that was really fortunate. I am so lucky. Or he could have thought, wow, how can it happen in such a way? That is really weird. Pharaoh didn't harm me and just sent me away. That is really fortunate. No matter what, Abraham must have started thinking that such an event was not something that could happen often but he still did not realize that it was God's protection. The Bible tells us that God struck Pharaoh's house with great plagues. But Abraham did not know that. He knew that God was a deity. But he did not know that God was the one who wanted a personal relationship with him and became involved in his life intimately. As a matter of fact, a lot of people do not realize that. I heard that Einstein, the most well-known theoretical physicist, say, I believe that God created the whole universe, but I cannot believe that God created the whole universe having a personal relationship with people. It is not quoted exactly, but it was along those lines. 
To Einstein, it was unfathomable that the being as great as God would want to have a relationship with such minuscule being as humans. And most people cannot accept that fact either. But our God is such a God. He does not think even the lowliest soul as worthless, but sees it as precious and desires a one-on-one -on -one relationship. That is what God wanted Abraham to realize. I am your God. You are my people. I am indeed your God. It is very personal. And God wants us to know that fact as well. But we can only know that through the experiences God provides us. We can know that the great God who wants to have a relationship with someone as meaningless as us through the experiences of our daily lives. And we learn about God through such experiences. We shared Abraham's weakness or not yet developed maturity in today's God of Abraham. But we also saw how wonderfully God worked and how He spread His hands of protection. I hope we can all experience His hands of protection in our lives. See you next week! Thy 
faithfulness Great is thy faithfulness Morning by morning New mercies I see All I have needed Thy hand hath provided Great is thy faithfulness We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.